I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. We are in Georgia this week again. And yeah, Nicole. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> I have a an interesting, a little bit of an unusual true crime story. It's different than anything we've done so far, but I had, cool. I had a fun time researching it. I think it should be interesting for everyone. I had to change my story halfway through. This oh, yeah? Week. Yeah. I, I hate when that happens, but usually it's a good thing. Yeah. So I found some fun and kind of weird Georgia laws. Like a lot of states, Georgia still has a bunch of old laws in the books because how often do laws really get removed? Taken away, yeah. They just stop enforcing them instead. Exactly. Uh, this one's pretty interesting, and Eden, it really pertains to you, maybe? Okay. Uh, I hope you don't like giving people piggyback rides because... No, I have a bad back. Oh, perfect. Then you won't have to worry. Uh, it's a legal for a one man to give another man a piggyback ride. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Don't do it. I, I won't. <laughs> like, with your bad back? Yeah. I'd be on the floor in a second. <laughs> there was a time when this girl who was dating my one friend they showed up at the bar the one night and she got very excited to see me even though this is only the second time she'd ever met me and she just like squealed and ran up and jumped on me (laughs) i was like trying to keep her stable but um my back is really really bad (laughs) and we both ended up falling to the floor well also don't accept any piggyback rides from strange men i will not i I never do although like i said people do like to pick me up for some reason (laughs) Um, So this is funny because I feel like this is similar to some of the Carolina laws. But in Georgia, donkeys may not be kept in bathtubs. All right. So no elephants, no donkeys. No horses in bathtubs. No horses. Just don't do it. In Georgia, no one may carry an ice cream cone in their back pocket if it's a Sunday. So that's what that picture was about. Yes. That melting. I mean, I, the first place I put down my ice cream cone is my back pocket. So I'm glad exactly. it's, they, yes. they let me know. I mean, that's where I always keep ice cream cones. <laughs> it's illegal to use profanity in front of a dead body when it's in a funeral home or in the coroner's office. Oh, okay. Well. So if you're giving a eulogy in Georgia, watch the swear words. Yeah. No F-bombs. Dropped. No cussing. So Georgia operates its own state lottery. And because it does, it protects, quote unquote, its citizens by making private lotteries illegal. Huh. So I wonder what that qualifies for. I just, in my head, I think of like, maybe not like bingo, but like, you know, raffles. Yeah. Would that be illegal? Probably not. Uh, Yeah, maybe. I don't know. It's interesting because there's a special law for state assembly members. They cannot be given a speeding ticket. If the state assembly is in session, so they're constitutionally protected from receiving a non-criminal traffic ticket during the legislative session, as well as two weeks before it. (laughs) So if you're late for that vote in the assembly, (laughs) feel free to speed. Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, There were a couple other funny ones, aside from the ice cream and the donkey. Uh, You can't live on a boat for more than 30 calendar days in a year. All right. So no houseboats. No houseboats. I mean, you can go to houseboats, but you can't like... Live there all the time. Exactly. In the town of Ackworth, all citizens must own a rake. Okay. Well, I, I would fit in fine there because <laughs> I do have a rake. It's broken, but I have a rake. In athens Clark County, adult bookstores may not sell booze. Do adult bookstores normally sell booze? I don't know, but that was a natural thought in my head. I'm like, I don't think I've ever run to like, yeah. you know... 
I mean, not that I've spent a lot of time in adult books. Exactly. Except when I was 18, just because you could go into them. Oh, yeah. You're like, I got to go to, I got to go buy something from the adult bookstore. I have to buy a lottery ticket. Exactly. (laughs) If it's before 1990, got to go get drunk in Jersey. (laughs) Uh, Also in Athens-Clark County, you cannot give a goldfish away to somebody to entice them to enter a game of bingo. All these okay. specific. That's very weird. Well, they're taking care of goldfish and concerned about their welfare. Well, I mean, I don't remember what time period this was, but I know like people when they win goldfish, they used to like swallow them. Yes, like that, like the like. I feel like it's like a like a flapper twenties like 20s, college 30s thing. thing. Yeah, yeah, because I know my grandparents talked about it. So I don't know. <laughs> also, in Athens, Clark County, which is has some great laws. Makes me really wonder about the history of that county. But if you're going out of business and you need to have a going out of business sale, you need a special business license to hold a going out of business sale. You need a specific license just for that. Yep. Yep. All right. It's also illegal to sell two beers for the price of one in athens Clark County. Damn. No beer bogo. That is not fair. Not that I've ever ran into a place that gave you two beers for the price of one, but still. Oh, this kind of goes back to our raffle question. So if an organization isn't registered as a nonprofit, fails to register a raffle they're holding with the local sheriff, that group could be fined up to $10,000. Whoa. And the members run the risk of spending five years in jail. Whoa. Okay. This... Uh, this state does not like raffles. No, they do. They do not. They do not like raffles. So that's uh, just a smattering of fun laws from Georgia. No raffles for Georgia. No raffles. And if you have a raffle, make sure, guys, listen to me. Make sure that you're not putting that ice cream cone in your back pocket. Anyway. All right. Melty ice cream aside. I guess... We should jump right into your story then. Okay, cool, cool. Today, we're heading to Augusta, Georgia. Located across the Savannah River from North Carolina and about 130 miles northwest of Savannah, Augusta is Georgia's second largest city with an estimated population of 197,000 residents. Founded by James Oglethorpe. I know that name. Yes, the founder of the colony. That guy who had that whole work will make you... Not a felon, I guess, philosophy. Yeah, something like that. So Augusta was founded by James Oglethorpe in 1736. And the city was named after Princess Augusta of Saxe-Gotha, King George III's mother. Augusta, the city, rapidly grew into a market town since it was surrounded by a major cotton cultivation area. And it basically became the hub where farmers would come and bring their product to then have it shipped out to other locations. In the early 19th century, through the Civil War, Augusta became a major producer of textiles, gunpowder, and paper due to the construction of the Augusta Canal and the Georgia Railroad, which linked it to Atlanta. Augusta was one of the few southern cities to survive the Civil War without major destruction and with its economy mostly intact. The late 19th century and early 20th century were a very prosperous time for the city. Additionally, Augusta's warm climate made it a major resort city during this time. Today, Augusta is probably best known as the host of the Masters Golf Tournament each spring and as the home of the Southern Baptist Convention, 
the largest Protestant denomination and the second largest Christian denomination after Catholics in the United States. Sounds about right. Mm -hmm. But the city still has a lot to offer. It's a regional hub for medical, biotech, and cybersecurity industries. It has a gorgeous historic district with well-preserved pre-Civil War area and houses. The city also has several universities and colleges, including Augusta Technical College, Payne College, which is a historically black Methodist college, and Augusta University, with its founding school, the Medical College of Georgia. The Medical College of Georgia, often called MCG for short, is the only public medical school in Georgia and is considered the flagship medical school for the university system of Georgia. It's one of the top 10 largest medical schools and the 13th oldest medical school in the United States. Founded in 1828, students attended lectures and clinical classes in a two-story Greek revival building at 598 Telfer Street in downtown Augusta. Dubbed the Old Medical College Building, the Medical College of Georgia was based out of this building until 1913. After that, the Old Medical College Building was used by various organizations over the next few decades before the Medical College of Georgia Foundation purchased the building in 1987. The foundation began restoring the building to its original 19th century appearance while updating the interior to meet modern building code standards. As a construction crew worked in the basement of the old medical college building, they made a horrifying discovery. Okay, what is this horrifying discovery? Layers and layers of human bones scattered among the remains of 19th century medical tools. Oh, okay. Even worse, these bones all showed telltale signs of medical dissection, and some even still bore specimen labels. Oh. The workers were naturally alarmed by this, so they called in the authorities as well as the Augusta University Forensic Anthropology Department. Students from the anthropology department soon took over the excavation. These students found almost 10,000 individual bones and bone fragments buried in the dirt. After studying the bones, they determined that almost 80% of the bones came from black people. Huh. The local coroner was able to determine that none of these bones were from any recent crimes, thankfully, and that they were most likely the remains used in the education of 19th century medical students. I'm wondering how they figured out that the bones were from black people like with skulls i know how to do it with skulls but i don't know about like let's say like a femur or something i mean there are basic anthropological standards but also i'm sure they ran like some kind of you know genetic testing whatever they could do because they were able to also identify like if the bones were from men or women yeah or children That part's normally easier yeah because women's bones tend to be a little smaller mm-hmm. in a lot of sp- spots. Like the the hips are like one thing that's the bigger one of the two, the wider one. But also like with skulls, women's bones tend to be more smooth, mm. less angular. Also ways to tell like race and things like that are normally, again, bone structured generally and also through teeth. Interesting. Interesting. So... When I read about this, I was like, why were there all these bones, these 10,000 bones buried in the basement school instead of properly disposed of? Well, that's because they come from stolen bodies. And according to MCG records, a majority of the bodies were stolen by one man who could possibly be the most prolific grave robber in American history. Oh, right. They learned all that just from... Oh, okay. 
So yeah, apparently the medical college of Georgia kept excellent records <laughs> and that's how we have a lot of this information. So this is the story of Grenison Harris. He was used as a solution to the costly problem of procuring fresh human bodies for educational dissection. Yeah, I was about to say, like, because when you said about them finding all those bones, I was mm-hmm. like, well, it is a medical school, so, but, okay. Uh, Harris was dubbed the resurrection man by faculty and students. Oh, I, I've heard of this, I think. That totally makes sense. So if the name resurrection man or the resurrectionist sound familiar, Eden roadsters that's because grave robbing and body theft were pretty commonplace in areas where 19th century medical schools were located okay pretty much both in the u.s and in europe human dissection was heavily regulated if not outright illegal however human dissection is one of the best ways to learn how the human body works now you may have heard of two of the most notorious resurrectionists william burke and william hare after finding the work of grave robbing too difficult, Burke and Hare killed 16 people and then sold their corpses for medical dissection in Edinburgh, Scotland between 1827 and 1828. Oh, holy shit. Okay. Yeah, they're pretty notorious. So notorious, in fact, that a new word called burking was coined and entered the English lexicon. Wait, were these people taken from here or from Edinburgh? Those those are guys from Edinburgh, but they're like okay. the most famous resurrectionists when people talk about it. Um, So... Burke, burking, became this like word that basically means if you're a victim of burking, you've been smothered to death and your body's been sold for dissection. Oh. Ain't learning fun. Yeah, really? Okay. <laughs> so why was grave robbing so profitable in the 19th century that Burke and Hare would risk killing people to sell their bodies? Well, huge advancements in medical and surgical methodology were seen during the 19th century it was the first time we really used things like stethoscopes, x-rays, blood transfusions, vaccine, and the wide acceptance of germ theory and antiseptic practices first appeared in the 19th century. So this generated all this public interest in the medical field and a boom in medical school enrollment. Okay. So the more students you have, the more bodies you're going to need to teach them basic things like anatomy and yeah. surgery. So... This facilitated a need for human cadavers. Now, today, most medical students use 3D models of cadavers, or they're able to use a cadaver for several weeks during a semester thanks to modern refrigeration and embalming techniques. 19th century medical students weren't so lucky. While most laws allowed medical students to purchase the bodies of executed criminals or bodies that were unclaimed after a certain length of time, this still didn't provide enough cadavers for students. Because you'd have to get a new cadaver pretty much every week. Yeah. Soon, a black market for bodies became the main source of cadavers for most medical schools. And because most laws were focused on punishing the act of grave robbing itself. Rather than buying the product. Exactly. Medical school purchasers rarely faced any kind of punishment if they were caught with stolen bodies. That's kind of fucked up. It is super fucked up. (laughs) Now, since the risk of procuring cadavers was on grave robbers, purchasing a body could be pretty pricey. One source stated that during the 1820s and 1830s, anatomists would pay between $5 to $25 per body. Now, this is a time when like the average skilled worker would earn $20 to $25 per week. So hugely lucrative. Yeah, absolutely. According to the Medical College of Georgia records, they would pay on average $100 a year for cadavers from New York City grave robbers. As the school continued to grow, the head anatomist would travel as far north as Baltimore to procure these bodies. Then, 
This is so messed up, dude. <laughs> <laughs> when you can't even read your own notes because it's too messed up, that's bad. <laughs> then in 1852, the faculty came up with a unique solution to cut the expense of purchasing cadavers. They would purchase a slave who could procure bodies locally. Oh, God. Okay. In using a slave, the faculty wouldn't have to worry about the rising cost of paying for bodies. Oh, my God. And the slave would be a convenient scapegoat should their body snatching scheme ever come to light. Oh, God. Isn't that terrible? That is really horrible. (laughs) I was not actually prepared for how bad that would be. Yes. So seven professors pooled their money and headed to the large slave market in Charleston, South Carolina. At the slave auction, they purchased a large and powerful 36-year-old Gullah man named Granison Harris for $700. Oh, we're back to the Gullahs. Mm-hmm. Back in Augusta, Harris's official title was Porter. Okay. And he would basically maintain and clean the old medical building during the day while stealing bodies for the school at night. That's quite the, uh, the change-up. I hope he got a shift differential for that. <laughs> to aid Harris in his nighttime activities... The faculty taught him how to read and write, which was actually illegal to do at the time. Yep. I remember that with uh, Frederick Douglass. Mm-hmm. Yep. You couldn't teach slaves to read or write. So they did this because they wanted Harris to be able to review the local obituaries to know when fresh bodies would be available. Harris also trained himself to quickly memorize the way floral arrangements were laid on the graves so that he could recreate the layout after digging up and removing the body. According to my sources, Harris preferred to steal bodies from Cedar Grove Cemetery, which is the main cemetery for Augusta's black and poor residents. Cedar Grove Cemetery had no fence, which made it easier for Harris to wheel a wagon for body carrying in and out. The penniless people who were buried there were usually placed in pine coffins, sometimes called toothpick coffins because they were so thin and flimsy. Oh, God. Okay. Don't like that. Yep, and this made it easier for Harris to bust into the coffin versus a more expensive oak or walnut coffin. His method was pretty simple. He'd monitor the local papers for funeral announcements and visit the cemetery during the day to learn where the grave was and what, if any, floral arrangements were on it. Then he'd return that night with his wagon, shovel, axe, and a large sack. Harris would dig up the top end of the grave He'd use the axe to chop open the coffin, and then he'd reach under the body's arms and haul it out. After placing the body in a sack, he would rebury the now broken and empty coffin and rearrange the gravesite, cart the body back to the old medical building. Then he'd place the body in a large vat of whiskey to wait for the next dissection class. Damn, okay. He had it all thought out, didn't he? Yep, yep. When the school required more bodies than Harris could find, He would actually act as an agent for the school, and he would make arrangements with other resurrectionists to buy corpses. So the medical school's faculty didn't have to do any of this work anymore now that they have this slave doing it for them. Oh, my God. Harris was also responsible for laying the bodies out in the classrooms and disposing of the bodies afterwards, which he probably did by burying them in the basement and then sprinkling the area with saltpeter to help minimize the terrible stench. I'm assuming it's quite a stinky job. Yeah. His expertise grew to the point where he would work in the anatomy classroom, first as a teaching assistant and then as a lecturer. Huh. Students were actually told that Harris held an honorary doctor's degree to give him more authority in classroom oh, settings. Wow, okay. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Now, one of my sources even said that students felt more comfortable working with Harris than they did with their anatomy professors. Huh. Overall, Harris was well-liked by students and the faculty, 
And I was actually able to find several class photos from this period that show Grannis and Harris in them, which is really cool, but creepy. Yeah. It's like all of these like 19th century, like dark suited white men. And then in the back, there'll be this really tall black guy. Huh. And at first you're like, oh, that's what, oh. I think it's weird that you said they're more comfortable with him because, Mm -hmm. I mean, this is obviously since slavery is still a thing Mm -hmm. uh, where just racism was a huge, huge deal. So I'm surprised that they felt more comfortable with a black man. Well, maybe it was one of those things where um, because he may have been like an authority figure, he was still a slave. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't quite as intimidating. Oh, okay. Maybe. That's what I kind of thought when I read that. Or it could have been the fact that Harris was generally a really like affable guy. I mean, still, that doesn't matter to racists. Yeah, fair. But these are also the way that the school treats him is very, it's a very enlightened sort of like slave owning, if that's a thing. Like okay. it's very, it's very um, paternalistic in okay. the way they treat him. Gotcha. So the faculty at MCG was very pleased with all of Harris's work. And while he was still a slave, the college did provide for him financially and afford him social privileges that would more commonly be afforded to a free black. Okay. So he actually received a small cash stipend for his work, which is kind of unheard of. Yeah, that's, wow, okay. He received room and board in the black area of Augusta, as well as a stipend for clothes and whiskey, because I'm sure he needed it after doing <laughs> the grave robbing. Yeah, there were a couple stories where it's like a lot of times on his way back from the graveyard, he would like stop at a local bar and like have some whiskey before he continued on his like ghoulish task to like take the body to the college. Yeah. There's one story actually that I saw in a couple sources where it was like this medical students like played a prank on him one time. Oh. So Harris goes and he stops for whiskey because he's just had probably a tough day digging up bodies. And the students remove the corpse from his cart and one of them crawls into the sack and when Harris comes back out, he's like the student cries, oh, Harris, Harris, I'm cold. Oh, Buy no. me a drink. And I guess Harris's response is something like, "Buy your own damn drink. I'm carrying on with my night. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm like, oh, God. But yeah. So in other ways, the college is also very um, gracious, I guess. I don't know. It's weird to like talk about like them being nice to like the human being that they own but yeah it's but they did some unusual things that wasn't common so they were better than other slave owners but still still slave slave owners exactly yeah so the college would pay for harris's 12 dollar round trip railroad fare to see his wife and son who were still enslaved in charleston after the trips became a little too costly because he would frequently take them because he missed his family the MCG faculty simply decided to purchase his wife and son, which they did for $1,250, and they relocated the entire family to Augusta in 1858. That was nice of them, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Okay. You know what? Just tell your story. (laughs) (laughs) After the Civil War ended, Harris was finally truly a free man, and he left Augusta and moved across the river to Hamburg, South Carolina. As a black man who could read and write, Harris ended up serving as a judge for a short time. Really? Mm-hmm. Because huh. um, he was considered literate, and yeah. that's pretty unique among the black population at that time Absolutely. after after the Civil War. However, when Reconstruction efforts failed and Jim Crow laws were rapidly passed, Harris lost his position, and seeing no other way to 
provide for his family, he returned to Augusta. He got his old porter job back at MCG, where now the students would mockingly call him a judge in reference to this like perceived disloyalty to the South because he was like a carpetbagger reconstruction judge. He also returned to a changing black community in which he kind of had this troubled position. Uh, His secure job at MCG and his literacy made him a powerful member of the community. According to one of my sources, Harris showed this by dressing like a, quote, proper gentleman. Uh, another source states that he was a, quote, flashy dresser who always wore a Panama hat in the spring and a derby hat in the winter and always had a boot near his, in his lapel on Sundays. Very fashion forward. Yes, very, very dapper. He would also throw these large parties at his house that were attended by influential members of the black community. And he was an active member of the local black Masonic society, too. Okay. However, there were also rumors about Harris's nighttime job duties that floated around the black community for years. Oh, so they were figuring some stuff out. Mm-hmm. Well, because people would see him like with these mysterious wagons in town. So rumors would talk like maybe he's doing something nefarious. Uh, m- mo- many folks partially feared him because of these rumors that he was like a body snatcher. And there was also rumors and they were probably untrue about other ghoulish acts that he was involved in yeah. at the college. In 1887, dissection was made illegal in Georgia, and laws were changed to allow for more unclaimed bodies to be steered towards the state's medical schools. Uh, however, this was only partially effective. Uh, MCG continued to employ Harris to fulfill the shortfall in cadavers through grave robbing and black, marches bo- black market body purchases, But the volume of his clandestine work did slow down after this. It never quite ceased, though. Okay. And I know this because I found a couple sources that said in 1889, an uproar ripped through the black community when several empty graves were found at Cedar Grove Cemetery. Now, these empty graves were seen as damning evidence of the long heard and gossiped about rumors about how black bodies were stolen for medical experimentation and other nefarious deeds by the local medical college. Great. Mm-hmm. Augusta's black community mobilized around this mistreatment of their dead and almost rioted at the old medical building. While pretty much all of my sources said there was a, quote, near riot, I didn't find out any info about what happened to quell the angry citizens. Um, you can guess it probably could have been Harris's power in the community, It could have also been the pressure of Jim Crow laws, but there's no real record of Grannison Harris or anyone at the Medical College of Georgia getting punished over the theft of these bodies. All right. In 1895, the school also hired his son, George, to assist the 79-year-old Harris with his custodial duties and body snatching duties. After six years, Harris retired and MCG gave him a small pension for his years of devoted service. In 1908, Harris returned to the college for one last lecture. He instructed students about the finer points of grave robbing. (laughs) Great. In 1911, Grenison Harris died of heart failure at the ripe old age of 95. It's a long life. It was a long life. He uh, worked for the college and stole bodies for them for almost 50 years. Okay, wow. Yeah. Uh, he's buried in his own stopping, his old stomping grounds at Cedar Grove Cemetery. In a little interesting twist of fate, a 1929 flood of the Savannah River destroyed all the records of burial locations in the cemetery. 
So no one knows exactly where Harris's body is buried, but no one can steal it either. That's yeah, I was about to say. And as for all those bones uncovered in the old medical building, they also ended up back in Cedar Grove Cemetery in 1998 with a stone marker engraved with the words known, but only to God. Okay. I've I've seen that. One of my stories that I did had that. And that is the tale of America's most prolific grave robber. That is fucked up on so many levels. (laughs) I was like, this is, this is true crime, but it's a really different. It's yeah. True crime. Definitely different. It's also weird to me that the idea that this medical school was in such high esteem in the city that everyone was kind of like, whatever, it happens. Yeah. He's just stealing from the poor people and from black people, so it doesn't matter. It's fine. Yeah. Oh, God. Terrible, right? It's Yeah, it's horrible to think about, but this was the South back then, mm-hmm. so it's kind of par for the course. Yeah, I just like, it's such a ghoulishly calculated solution to the problem of paying for bodies. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God, of course, of course. Because I mean, that's the only real way that you will learn about human anatomy Mm -hmm. is human dissection. Unfortunately, it's gross, but if you want to learn. Yep, best teacher is the human body. Yep. So my sources for this week's story were Wikipedia, Grave Robbing in the North and South in Antebellum America by Rachel Mathis, face-to-faceafrica.com, jagwire.augusta.edu, an article from the Augusta Chronicle, uh, a newsletter from the African-American Genealogy Group, Smithsonian Magazine, atlasobscura.com, and apnews.com. All right. Well, thank you for that story, Nicole. You're welcome. I hope it you're sufficiently was, creeped out. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm upset on many levels. It's, I think you did your job today. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. All right. I guess with that said, we'll take a little break and, um, you know, not to steal bodies or anything. We're just going to go have a snack or something. And uh, we'll be back. And we're back. We're back. Um, yeah. So now that we're all depressed from Nicole's story, I guess I'll tell you a story that'll make you possibly less depressed, maybe more depressed. I don't know. I'll roll those dice. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to jump right in. Let's do it. My story for this week takes place in Americus, Georgia, which I had never heard of. So my mind automatically went to that Natalie Portman film, Where the Heart Is, since her daughter, who was born in the local Walmart, if you have forgotten the plot, uh, was named Americus because she wanted to give her child a name that, quote, meant something. You'd have to ask her what it meant because it means nothing to me, but... Cool. Yeah. Anyway, back to my intro. It's the county seat of Sumter County and has a population of 17,000-something that I messed up on when typing my notes. So (laughs) 17,000-something as of the 2010 census anyway. So who knows? 17-something in 2010. Yeah. Cool. 17,000? Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. There was supposed to be another number in there, but it just said 17, comma, space 41. So... (laughs) (laughs) So the population is 17,000 space 41, guys. Um, It's home to the international headquarters for Habitat for Humanity, as well as the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregiving. So this place seems to be big on its humanitarian efforts. It has some humble beginnings as a, quote, small courthouse town, according to Wikipedia, which I guess means there was a courthouse and not a lot else. But it later became a cotton distribution center and was known as the, quote, metropolis of southwest Georgia. Okay. 
Americus is also a big spot for the civil rights movement for both activists and detractors. It was home to an interracial Christian community in 1942, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spent some time in the courthouse jail here in 1961 after being arrested in Albany. Hmm. This place is also known for its antebellum and Victorian homes, one such structure I will be talking about today. This is the story of the Windsor Hotel. Mm, Other hotel. Yeah, well, my other one that I had to stop doing was also a hotel. (laughs) So the Windsor Hotel was built in 1892 uh, to get some more winter visitors from up north. Makes sense. It was designed by Gottfried Leonard Norman, even though someone else's design had been chosen first. Interesting. The original etching of the plans can be found in the hotel lobby to this day. The building itself is a beautiful grand Queen Anne structure that raises up five stories high. This thing actually takes up nearly a full city block, so it's massive. Wow. Yeah, it's That's big. huge. Early on, it had 100 guest rooms and even has a three-story atrium lobby. That sounds really beautiful. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Initially, when this place was being built, they estimated the cost at $80,000 or $2,304,605 today. The actual cost was closer to 150000 or $4,321,134 today. Hmm. There was some disagreement over what the name of the building should be, and it was almost called the Alhambra to try to add a touch of international flavor, quote-unquote. <laughs> or Orientalism. Yeah, sure. Mystic. Cool. But we're talking about the South in the 1800s, So if it wasn't 100% white and 100% American, it probably wasn't going to happen. So they named it after a rich white guy instead, John Windsor, one of the leading capitalists in town. They also felt this name sounded very aristocratic, which I can definitely see since I think of the castle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. To actually construct the building, they decided to go with someone they already had doing work around town, the Americus Manufacturers and Improvement Company. They had previously worked on City Hall and improved the Furlough Masonic Female College, which were both also designed by Norman. Okay, so working with familiar architects and also familiar local companies. Contractors, yeah. Fun fact, this was the only hotel in the area to use individualized silverware, which was made for the hotel by local jeweler in town, James Fricker and Brother. Fancy. Yep. On October 22nd, 1891, the last brick was laid, and on June 16th of the following year, the Windsor Hotel had its grand opening. This was a huge event with thousands of people in attendance. The event was held in the ballroom on the fifth floor, and they even managed to book over 100 guests in the first day. Wow. So people were like really dying to get in here. Hot spot. The hotel seemed to be doing really well up until the Depression hit in 1893 which caused the hotel to file for bankruptcy by the end of the late 1890s. Yikes. I thought this next part was kind of interesting. Remember my fun fact about the silverware? Mm-hmm. Well, Charles A. Fricker, the brother of Fricker and Brother, actually bought the hotel at auction for $40,000. Wow. Yeah. That is a great deal. Yeah. After this, the hotel went under major renovation It got electric lighting, which I assume before it had all gas lamps, Mm -hmm. Uh, new elevators, telephones, which I'm sure was very fancy for the time, 
and steam heat. Ooh. All of this cost Charles a pretty penny, and he spent a whopping $75,000 on everything. Still less than it cost to build the hotel. Yeah, right? (laughs) (laughs) The property was sold once more in the 1930s to a man named Howard Dayton of Daytona Beach, Florida. He was known for owning hotels in both Florida and Georgia and did a pretty good job of running this massive structure until it finally closed down in 1974. Before it closed its doors, it had been running for a while as apartments rather than a hotel. Makes sense because it's, you know, probably set up for that. Yeah. With the place being closed down, it was just kind of sitting there and collecting dust. One of my sources actually described it as a white elephant. So, (laughs) yeah. So in 1978, they were given two choices on what to do with the Windsor Hotel. They could either demolish the building and use the space for parking. Does anyone else suddenly have Big Yellow Taxi by Joni Mitchell stuck in their head? (laughs) Uh, Or they could restore it to its former glory. Thankfully, they decided to do the latter, as it would be a shame to lose such an amazing old building. It's a little strange because according to Wikipedia, the hotel was on the National Register of Historic Places as of 1976, and I was under the impression that if something was on that register, that it couldn't be torn down. Well, I looked it up because I was very confused, and I did some digging, and I was surprised to find that you can still tear down these buildings. It just makes it a little harder to pass. Yeah, you have to get like a, oh, what's it called? Not a dispensation, but like you have to get permission to do it. So during this time, since this was quite a big deal for the town of Americus, they did this whole revitalization of downtown thing where they asked local businesses and shop owners to revitalize their storefronts as well. Hmm. They finished the revitalization in 1991. I think it's time for another fun fact. I'm ready. They were about to save a ton of money, $400,000 in fact, by switching to Geico. (laughs) just kidding uh they were able to save the money by using prison inmates to revitalize the hotel awesome as long as the building in question is owned by the city they are allowed to do that's kind of messed up yeah but i guess they're just like go ahead you don't know how to do this go do it what could possibly go wrong exactly although they've had prisons built by prisoners before as we've discovered from some of my other stories Mm -hmm. so They did spend a lot of money on this project elsewhere, however, besides also having help from the federal government and state governments. Uh, For example, they spent $107,000 on masonry repair and painting alone. Dang. They also used a $400,000 grant to replace the roof and create an area for seniors. That's right. It takes a lot of money to make a place look good again. During this grueling renovation process, They tried to keep things as close to the original as possible, doing things like getting the wood back to its original color. The wood in the lobby is made of golden oak, and it had gotten dark over the past near century, as things do. Mm -hmm. They used acetone, which is the stuff in nail polish remover, and tongue oil, which is oil from the seeds of a tongue tree. Don't ask because I've never heard of a tongue tree before, but that's t-u-n-g tongue like tungsten okay and not tongue like in your mouth okay i feel safer knowing that yeah in my head i'm just picturing oil let's lick this no (laughs) no i know that's what i thought too even though i read the word i've I've heard of elbow grease before but (laughs) tongue oil anyway they also removed the uh original marble floor of the lobby for cleaning before putting it back piece by piece 
So all of that is also original to the building. Cool. In total, the new renovations cost around $6.5 million. That makes sense why yeah. it was so expensive. They took all that extra care to to like do the original, like oh, keep yeah. as many original materials and things like that. Absolutely. I mean, taking the marble out piece by piece, cleaning it and putting it back, that's, yeah. that's dedication right there. Yep, yep. So now you guys have to stay at this hotel <laughs> just because they worked so damn hard on it. Guilt trip. <laughs> this place has seen some pretty big names over the years, most notably former presidents. Jimmy Carter and his wife Rosalind stayed there, and there's actually the Carter Presidential Suite at the hotel in honor of him. There's also the Roosevelt Boardroom, named after Franklin D. Roosevelt, because he'd given speeches there and stayed here in the 20s when he was still the governor of New York. Hmm. Uh, You're probably wondering what all this Jimmy Carter stuff is, and he actually was born in one of the neighboring towns. That makes sense, especially with like Rosalind Carter's care center. Yeah. The third floor suite is named for Jessica Tandy, and the adjoining room is named for Hume Cronin, who had an extended stay at this hotel while filming a Hallmark movie called To Dance with the White Dog. I've never heard of it. That's a stupid title, and um, (laughs) (laughs) but it's a Hallmark movie, so... I just love Jessica Tandy. I thought it was something like Jessica Tandy. Did I read that right? Mm -hmm. And then I was like, oh, okay. She stayed there while making a movie. I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, to dance with the white dog. I'm going to look that up because I forgot to while doing these notes. Uh, There's also a bridal suite with some unique history as well. Hmm. First, I will say that it seems like a really nice room. It has a private staircase to get to it and has a Demi canopied king bed. Fancy. It's said that Al Capone and John Dillinger stayed there with armed guards at the foot of the stairs. What? Yeah. Today, the Windsor Hotel is still up and running with a lot of modern features they didn't have back in the day, such as televisions and coffee makers in the rooms and newspapers available for free at the front desk. There's a restaurant called the Rosemary and Thyme Restaurant. And a pub called Floyd's Pub. And I will talk more about Floyd later. Okay. The atrium I mentioned in the beginning is also still open and still amazing. And if you want a nice view of downtown, you can sit out on the veranda. Hint, hint, listeners. My birthday is in February. And they have a special murder mystery package in February. So if anyone is looking to get me a gift, I take a size free trip to Georgia. (laughs) There's a lot more history on this place than I wrote i just wanted to write down what i thought was interesting i gave the abridged version so if you want to look it up go for it i didn't think a lot of the other stuff was overwhelmingly interesting or it was just a bunch of names that meant nothing to me yeah maybe if you're really into like political presidential history yeah you'll find it fascinating yeah so we're just going to move right along to the hauntings yeah so this is the story they tell i don't know if it's what actually happened or not, so take it for what it is. Disclaimers abound. Back in the early 1900s, there was a housekeeper who worked at the hotel named Emily May, and Emily May had a daughter named Emma. She also had an angry lover. Uh-oh. Wait, the daughter? Or... No, not the daughter. <laughs> okay, okay, sorry. The daughter was a little girl. Oh, gotcha. Um, That would have been really weird. Yeah. I don't know exactly 
what they were arguing about, but they were having a pretty heated argument in front of Emma, and Emma clutched her mother's hand. Uh, the lover ended up pushing em- Emily May into a nearby elevator shaft in his fit of anger, not realizing that the shaft was empty, and both Emily May and Emma both plunged to their deaths three stories below, all while still holding hands. One, you don't roughhouse by an elevator. No. Two, of course the elevator shaft's empty if there's no elevator on that floor. What a monster. So, yeah. Both people that have visited this place and people who work there said that they felt the presence of a little girl from that day forward. Mm. This might be Emma. There's also reports of a woman in black. She is said to be wearing a long black dress, and she can be seen in a mirror on the third floor. Oh, that's spooky. People also hear the sound of a child running up and down the halls of the third floor. The elevator doors on the third floor open and close on their own. There's also something weird with the lighting and radios in this place where they just like to turn on and off by themselves. Objects such as pots and pans fly off tables and counters. Cold spots can be felt in various areas of the hotel. There's also the spirit of a doorman named Floyd. Floyd! Uh, who worked for the hotel, still going about his business and welcoming guests. I really hope he liked his job if he's still doing it for all eternity. Well, maybe he was one of those, like, you know, extroverts just, you know, yeah. liked being out there and chatting with people. And Let's hope so. He also still helps guests with their luggage. What? Yeah, you'll see, like, a doorman who'll be like, hey, you know, let me grab your luggage. Okay, I'll take you up to this room. And they're like, we don't have a doorman anymore. Oh! <laughs> yeah. He's very friendly, which is good. That's good. Uh, but he does tend to give the kitchen staff a hard time, so he might be the one responsible for the pots and pans <laughs> flying about. <laughs> People who have stayed at the hotel have found their items in different spots around their rooms from where they had set them down at. Uh, a lot of doors here open and close on their own. Again, on the third floor, people have reported hearing the disembodied screams of a woman and a baby crying. Mm-hmm. As far as rooms of the most activity, I came across room 333 to be a major hotspot for activity. Don't worry, it's only half evil, though, since 333 is only half of 666. (laughs) In the lobby mirror, people have seen other people's reflections in their photos. Wait, so like you'll be taking a a photo in the lobby? Take a photo by the mirror. Yeah. And you'll see other people in that mirror that aren't you. They're reflections instead of yours. Oh, that's that's so unsettling. That's very creepy. I yeah. don't like that one bit. There are a lot of people who have said that they were skeptical before staying in this hotel, but after they left a believer. Mm. Uh, this place is also said to be especially active on Halloween, which is no surprise since that's supposed to be when the veil thins. So. Mm-hmm. The Windsor Hotel does offer ghost tours if you're interested. According to the internet, the tours are only $12, so that's not a bad price. And they will take you to parts of the hotel that are not normally open to the public. That's cool. Like a behind-the-scenes tour. Yeah, absolutely. If you do decide to stay at the hotel, you can write down your experiences in a book in the lobby or just browse it and see what ghostly shenanigans others have experienced. Okay, I would straight up like check in, get my room, and then like go to that book and be like, anything crazy happened in this room? And if it was too intense, I would ask them to change my just room. Just change your room. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't really have to worry about that. The ghosts are pretty nice here. Knowing's half the battle, though. Yeah, that's true. 
All in all, it seems like a pretty calm place as far as the activity goes. Nothing really is trying to kill you or scare you here, and it seems like every ghost is friendly. Most of my sources said something along the lines of, remember, you're in the South, so they're kind. (laughs) (laughs) Great Southern manners. Exactly. Southern hospitality. Uh, So what do you think, Nicole? Should we go? Uh, Yeah, I would. The whole murder mystery weekend actually sounds like doubly fun. Oh, yeah. And it sounds like a beautiful hotel. And I feel like because the ghosts are friendly or you don't realize it until you look at your photos, uh, I'd be pretty okay with that, surprisingly. Yeah, it seems like a really good place. Uh, And I mean, you could go for the, um, the murder mystery weekend and then also do a ghost tour, I think. So that would be really cool. Mm. Uh, I'm going to show you a picture of the hotel now just so you can see what it looks like because it is beautiful. Slightly castle Oh, yeah. That is really beautiful. Like a, a round turret section yep. and then like the beautiful like architecture with the arched roofs. See, there's this bar in um, downtown Easton. I forget which one it is. Is the Two Rivers? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which has like the turret. Yeah. And my ex-husband all the time when I'd say, "Oh, there's that turret I like." He's like, "You like a turd?" Yeah, he would constantly think I was saying turd. I think he was purposely hearing me wrong, but yeah. So, I-, I feel like you made the right choice in leaving that marriage. Oh yes, because <laughs> that that was the turd. <laughs> anyway, guys, that is my story for this week sources oh my sources yes my sources they got stolen by a ghost no um (laughs) they're here uh i used wikipedia windsoramericas.com gpbnews.org explorgeorgia.org walb.com georgiahauntedhouses.com fox5atlanta.com and wrbl.com so lots of things that are just letters guys well, I guess all words are just letters. But <laughs> Acronyms? Unless it's unless it's leet, then you might have some numbers thrown in there. Fancy pants. That's it for today, Roadsters. You can join us next week as we head to Florida. Mm-hmm. It's going to be exciting. I can't wait to get to Florida and find out all the wacky true crime stories we have to share with you. Oh, yes. And I have a very special thing planned for Florida as well. Ooh. A little fun thing to do beforehand after we read the... Um, the fun facts about Florida. Okay, cool. You heard it here first. Yeah, so we'll have something special. Now you're committed to doing that, Eden. I know. <laughs> if you want to reach out to us, you can do so at our email address, which is roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. Or you can stop by any of our social media pages. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Roadside Horror Show. And you can find us on Twitter at Roadside Horror. You can also check out our website at www. which you don't need but i just enjoy saying it i guess because i'm a relic of the past uh show.podbean.com. did you mention our email nicole okay then you can email us where nicole told you to because i'm not repeating it then uh we'd also like to thank yox rocks designs for our amazing logo and emassy for our amazing intro and outro music so until next time roadsters creep, creep on, on creeping, creeping on, on.